Welcome to Crashing the War Party, recorded each week for your edification from my perch in Washington, D.C., and from my co-host Daniel Larison's crib in Pennsylvania. We have a great show for you today with writer James Carden talking about the personalities and players in Biden's inner foreign policy and national security circle, working the controls behind the U.S. policy in Russia, Ukraine. But first, this weekend was the third year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal of the Iran nuclear deal. At the time, Trump made it out to be a fulfillment of a campaign promise to his neocon and hawkish supporters, saying on May 8th, 2018, quote, this was a horrible one-sided deal that should have never, ever been made. It didn't bring calm, it didn't bring peace, and it never will. Critics of the deal, which included his UN ambassador at the time, Nikki Haley, said Iran wasn't living up to its end of the bargain, which was quantifiably untrue. Inspectors in charge of monitoring Iran's nuclear activities said they were keeping to the enrichment and on-site monitoring ends of the bargain. Haley and others also said that Iran was still bullying its neighbors and maintaining a ballistic missile program, two things that weren't in the original agreement anyway. Dan, we know that there were forces on the right and even among Democratic partisans who never wanted this agreement signed in the first place. Now the window seems to be closing on getting it renewed, even though Biden seemed to promise as much as a candidate. So are the hawks going to get their way on this or not? Well, unfortunately, it's looking more and more like they are going to prevail. They they set up uh, so many sanctions, including sanctions on non-nuclear issues, uh, as a way of, kind of creating a trap uh, for the next administration uh, to, to create barriers to re-entry uh, into the JCPOA uh, by the U.S., uh, that they, they were gambling that the next administration wasn't willing to take the political heat for lifting non-nuclear sanctions in order to save a nuclear deal. And and that's, in fact, what we're seeing happen, because one of the, the sticking points, as we've talked about before, is this FTO designation for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which in practical terms doesn't really matter very much in terms of their financing because they're sanctioned in other ways. Uh, but uh, as, a, as a symbolic issue, uh, it's very important to the Iranians because they don't like having part of their military labeled as terrorists uh, being included on that list. Uh, of course, it's a symbolic sticking point on our side or among Iran hawks because they don't like the the optics of taking them off of this list having already put them on. Uh, so it's in on one level, it's it's a fight over basically nothing. Uh, in fact, Peter Beinart made a a really good point in his column on that this week, saying that uh, you know, Biden is basically allowing maybe allowing the nuclear deal to die over nothing, which is which is really what this designation issue is. Uh, but because of the symbolism of it, uh, Iran hawks have been able to, to use it as a, a cudgel to, to really beat Biden over the head with. And it seems like whenever the hawks start to, to put pressure on him, Biden tends to, to yield uh, on most issues uh, to what they want. And, and so that, that was the other thing that Biden was pointing out in his column, that the, the the key to understanding Biden's position on Iran is that he, he's essentially uh, acting with with political timidity uh, because he doesn't want to antagonize hawkish detractors any more than he already has. And so, we, what you and this is not the only issue that this happens on. And so, what you end up with is Biden ends up getting stuck with 
the, the legacy of Trump's policies that he had publicly denounced, uh, but he's not actually willing to, to undo them in any practical way. And so, you know, the coming back to the original question, yeah, I think the Iran Hawks are going to come out uh, with a, a victory for themselves. It will, of course, be a huge setback uh, for U.S. interests, for the interests of non-proliferation, and of course, for regional stability. Because one of the things that the deal, when it was fully functioning, did was to make conflict between the U.S. and Iran less likely. And we saw almost immediately after the U.S. reneged that the U.S. and Iran became uh, much closer uh, to going to war. And we were, we were very nearly there in 2020. And I, I fear, uh, based on some of the revelations we've heard from Esper's book, uh, it sounded like Trump was eager for a rematch uh, even later in 2020, after the, the Soleimani assassination, so there's uh, there's a lot to be concerned about that we we may be stumbling our way towards a new conflict with Iran uh, simply because they're they're unwilling to make this very minimal face saving concession right. that that it could keep it alive. Yeah, and I and I guess what the the most dangerous aspect of this is, at least from my point of view, is that uh, there are several prominent Democrats, hawks on this issue, Democratic hawks on this issue, uh, like Bob Menendez, for example, or um, Senator Lankford uh, out of Oklahoma, who are able to push legislation and bills, symbolic or not onto the floor, indicating that they will be siding with their um, cohorts on the right when this issue does come up. Uh, that includes uh, a bill that just got was just passed in the Senate um, that had 16 Democrats able to push it uh, to a 62 to 33 passage that basically was in favor of leaving the IRGC designation on, um, on, uh, on, on the books which is obviously complicates Biden's efforts. Now it's a symbolic bill, but it complicates his efforts uh, to push forward with a deal and um, basically puts the Biden administration on notice. And this is coming from his own party. So if it was just a matter of Republican hawks, I think that Biden would be able to pass something. He'd be able to do what he had to do to get this agreement with the Iranians. Um, but he is being stymied by um, his own party, which which also, um, you know, it, it it gives the Biden the impression that he doesn't have the wiggle room politically to do this. It puts the pressure on him about regarding um, the um, the upcoming midterms and and not wanting to, to to look soft on Iran or soft on terror. And so I, I do feel that he's in quite a, a political pickle right now. Well, I mean, he, he is. He is in a bit of a bind, but it's also, to, to a certain extent, a bind of his own making. He's he's dragged his feet on getting the U.S. back into the deal for so long. Uh, we're you know we're now well over a year from when the negotiations first started, uh, and and I think now uh, fifteen months since he took office, uh, almost. So the, the the fact that we're we're still wondering whether the deal is going to survive here in in May of twenty twenty two is itself an indictment of the way that Biden has handled this. Uh, that's given Iran hawks time to organize, time to, to consolidate 
their forces and to to bring that pressure to bear on the administration when if he had moved more swiftly back when the Rouhani government was still in place, uh, we, we could be looking at a very different situation then. Um, the, the other thing that I've been struck by uh, is how, uh, I guess, a little urgency Biden seems to place on reviving the agreement when in, in principle, the, the whole point of having the agreement is to make sure that Iran is as far away from having the ability to develop nuclear weapons as possible. So so how can there be this sort of lackadaisical approach to it when it's supposedly such a, a critical issue? Um, that's and, and I think that's why you have so many Democrats that are willing to vote against the Biden line, because it seems like Biden isn't going to extract any penalty from them. They, they don't have to fear any backlash from him. And so instead, uh, he is the one who ends up being uh, uh, surrounded on all sides by uh, both hardliners from the Republican Party and, and also the opportunists in his own party who see no price uh, to be paid for defying him. And so it's, uh, I, I, th- I think you, what you're seeing, in addition to the, the, the political problems that Biden faces, is, is a lack of leadership on Biden's part. That, that compounds his political difficulties. And, and I think that extends to many other foreign policy issues besides Iran, but it, it's, I think it's most clearly shown here where this is something he campaigned on. It's something where most of his top officials were, were major architects of the original deal. You would think if anybody has an investment in bringing it back, it should be these people, uh, but they just don't seem to be very interested in it. Yeah, I mean, this really is the legacy of of the Democratic Party is that they are so scared for being painted soft on terror, um, soft on foreign policy in general, that they go into instant reactionary mode when they're elected. And we saw this through the Obama administration. Obama did not have a muscular, proactive foreign policy. He might have started out that way making a lot of declarations during his candidacy and maybe in the first few months uh, when he traveled to, I believe it was Cairo, made a big speech about Muslim and Western relations and whatnot. And and that all sort of fell apart when uh, things started happening on uh, the world stage. And it seems that they were constantly just reacting to events. And um, as a result, they had this mushy, squishy foreign policy that was part hawk, part moderate, part uh, God knows what it is. And it always seemed that it, it just seemed that Obama was constantly afraid of the political ramifications of what he did, whether it be, you know, going all in on Syria. So he doesn't go all in on Syria, but then ends up um, funding all of these quote unquote moderate um, fighters, uh, Islamic fighters in, in Syria. We know what happened there. Uh, we saw him engage in regime change in Libya. Didn't want to go all in on that, just create the space so that that, he, that Gaddafi could be overthrown on the ground and give weapons uh, to the fighters there. And then we saw what happened there um, and so on and so forth. Everybody knows the story. Um, I think that there was some hope that Biden would be different because he was so old. He had been in, uh, he had been in Washington for what, 40 years he didn't seem to be afraid of the political uh, ramifications of, of, of foreign policies. 
He seemed that it, it just seemed that he would take a clear stand on some of these issues, including Yemen, including Iran. Um, and it's been anything but. Well, we're, we're going to be talking to James Carden in, in the next segment about who the heck is advising this guy? Who's shaping the policy? It doesn't seem clear. It doesn't seem coherent. And so I think this is what happened with the Iran um, uh, deal as well. We felt that we had a president who was just going to basically say, this is how it is. This is what I'm doing. This is what I campaigned on and just like it or leave it. And the thing with Trump was, is that Trump was like, this is what I'm doing, like it or leave it. And he actually had a policy of restraint. I mean, a stated policy of restraint. He didn't always behave in that manner. But the funny thing was, is he basically came on the scene and he said things like, I want the NATO countries to pay their fair share. And by the way, we're getting out of Germany and everybody went crazy. And he was going to, he was going to do it. He actually put that policy into motion until Biden came in and reversed it. But it was funny because normally Republicans are like, you know, uh, like it or leave it. Uh, but it's a hawkish policy and they get praised all over by their, their by their their people for it. Um, Trump was somewhat different about that. Um, it's unfortunate, but the Democrats just don't have the confidence to execute re a restraint foreign policy, even when they campaign that way. Well, and, and and this is the defensive crouch that that you were referring to that we've seen for my my whole lifetime. I think I, I can't. I mean, with with a few exceptions during the Obama years, when Obama was convinced of, of a certain course of action and actually saw it through, the, the nuclear deal is proof of that. True. Uh, that tendency in Obama's presidency, uh, when he was really committed to something. And it, it usually had to do with non-proliferation or arms control because those were issues that he actually cared about. When those issues were on the line, he would actually burn political capital and would take on entrenched interests to do something. Uh, I, I I think maybe the uh, another explanation to understand what ha is happening with Biden is that on non-proliferation and arms control and things like that, he simply doesn't have Obama's conviction that these things matter uh, to the extent mm -hmm. that Obama thought that they did. And so Biden's not going to, to put in the effort. He's not going to, to take the risks for it because he doesn't, he doesn't think it's really worthwhile. Uh, but what, you know, one of the things that's been striking to me is that Iran hawks have been proven uh, decisively wrong about getting out of the nuclear deal uh, as clearly as anyone has ever been proven wrong on any foreign policy issue since the Iraq war. But somehow, because of the the screwed up culture in Washington, they they aren't have not only not paid any price for it, they're actually coming out stronger than they were a few years ago. Yeah, uh, they're they're essentially driving the debate. They're the ones who have thrown up all the roadblocks that are blocking Biden's path, and it looks like they're going to get uh, at least a large part of what they wanted, because unless the talks resume and we get past these sticking points, the JCPOA is going to be history by the end of the year, at which point uh, there will be the, the, the predictable drumbeat for military action or more sabotage or, or some kind of interference uh, to try to, quote-unquote, solve the nuclear issue that the JCPOA had already resolved for decades. And so it's it's very frustrating to see how 
a diplomatic agreement that completely succeeded in what it was set out to do uh, has been so uh, systematically undermined and destroyed by some of the worst people in this country, uh, and and they're winning. And uh, you know, it's it's a depressing note to end on, but that's unfortunately that's the reality of it. have the distinct pleasure of welcoming James Carden to the show today. James is Washington columnist for Asia Times and former advisor to the U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission at the U.S. Department of State. He is also a board member for the American Committee for, for U.S.-Russia Accord. His articles and essays have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including The Nation, the American Conservative, Responsible Statecraft, Spectator, Unheard, The National Interest, Los Angeles Times, and American Affairs. James, you wrote an excellent article that I have been passing along all week. You wrote this for the Asia Times last week called The Company Men Behind Biden's Foreign Policy Blob that I believe did us all a foreign, as foreign policy watchers a great service. You've actually cast a light on one of the great mysteries of our times, who is actually crafting the Ukraine-Russia policy from the White House? Is there actually a policy? If so, why does it seem so scattershot? So can you talk to us a little bit about who Biden's closest advisors are um, in this realm and how they might be shaping Washington's reaction to the Russia invasion and our increasing proxy war with Moscow? Uh, I'll try, um, because the, and thanks for the kind introduction. The top, it's still a bit opaque, really. I mean, um, all the article did really, I, I think was sort of skim the surface. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that um, there have been mentions in the media about something called a tiger team that was set up uh, under the NSC. Um, in preparation for what has been going on since February. And that was set up in response to Russia's buildup of troops around the Ukrainian border at the end of last year. Then there was a mention of something called the Russia Strategy Group um, and lots of effort into finding out whether that's mid-level, working level, high level, um, it still very much eludes me, uh, but I'm but I'm I'm working on it. Um, what we do know is that Biden's foreign policy is um, being basically handled by um, a bunch of Obama alumni, and that sort of makes sense since this is the policy I think that we would have ended up with if Obama was in his third term or if Hillary Clinton had, had won the election or whatever. Um, it's Jake, Jake Sullivan is the, the young national security advisor who came up under Amy Klobuchar as an aide to Klobuchar and then uh, entered Clinton world. You have longtime Biden um, policy advisor, Anthony Blinken, who went from being a staffer to secretary of state. You have, um, of course, Victoria Newland, who seems to be running 
Russia policy at the State Department, which really shouldn't be a surprise since she was the run, run, running policy in 2014 when all of this began. Um, and apparently a protege of hers um, appears before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee tomorrow uh, to be confirmed uh, as the next ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, that that um, is a career foreign service officer named uh, Bridget Brink. So that's sort of where we are right now. It's um, uh, that's sort of, you know, who's calling the shots uh, at, at the moment. Um, I've heard that the real power, uh, the real center of gravity at the Pentagon is, is, is General Milley, not Lloyd Austin. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's about, that about sums it up right now. We also um, mentioned you in comparing with Reagan's first term, uh, a troika of inner circle, uh, most trusted advisors. Uh, you mentioned um, the names Ron Klain, White House Chief of Staff, uh, Counselor of the President Steve Ricchetti, and Deputy Chief of Staff Bruce Reed. I think to most people listening, I, I recognize Ron Klain's name. But who are these people? Because they, they don't seem to be familiar. They're not um, they're not household names. Right. So Klain, I think, first gained wide public attention as part of the recount effort 22 years, hard to believe, 22 years ago in Florida. Um, Bruce Reed has been a longtime policy hand in Washington. He came up under Al Gore in the 1980s. He's part of the sort of Democratic Leadership Council centrist uh, Democrat um, brain trust. And so he ended up as, I think, chief, yeah, chief domestic policy advisor under President Clinton. And he's written a lot. Um, and he is um, no friend of progressive, as I write in the article, he's no friend of progressive uh, politics, which is more or less in keeping with um, most of the appointees in the Biden administration. Uh, Rashetti has been a, a very, very long time. Steve Rashetti has been a long time Biden, um, Biden aide. Uh, and he uh, then after uh, the Obama administration went to work as a healthcare lobbyist. Um, and so, uh, and then you have the Donlin, the Donlin brothers are very, are very much on the inside. Uh, Tom Donlin was Obama's, as we know, Obama's national security advisor. And I think a very, very good one. Um, and his brother, Mike Donlin, apparently handles polling and messaging, along with another longtime Democratic hand, uh, a woman by the name of Anita Dunn. So that pretty much rounds up the top tier of the um, or the real inside circle of the of the Biden team. Now, I guess the obvious question is, where are all these people coming from? Is there a distinct thread in terms of where they are on the ideological scale when it comes to foreign policy? I mean, you mentioned Newland and her protege. So you would say, OK, they are more, you know, liberal internationalists, if anything. But I, I'm not getting a, a sense, maybe outside of Blinken and Sullivan, who are are, are, are very um, out there in the public eye. They seem very conventional, very blobby, uh, probably part of that liberal international set. 
But what about some of these other people? How would how would we place them um, on the field here? Are they people who are going to get us into a war? Are they people who are going to hold the the president back? Are they just technocratic types? Do they do they care? Do we know? <laughs> I mean, I think in answer to the question, are they going to get us into a war? I think the answer is not on purpose, um, but. I think that, you know, they fall very squarely into the mainstream of democratic foreign policy, thinking the kind of thinking, call it neocon light, that has dominated the Democratic Party since the Clinton administration. So this is going back 30 years. So the problem with the group isn't that they aren't, um, that they haven't been successful, that they're not well credentialed, um, that they don't know how to work the levers of power. The problem is is that they're utterly conventional. And what we desperately need right now is some unconventional outside the blob thinking in order to get this thing wrapped up. And I think you can see that in the administration's current approach to, to the war, because Basically, the idea now is we're going to send these outrageously large sums of aid, sums of money, ammunition, javelin missiles, whatever, and bleed the Russians and really use the Ukrainians as proxies to weaken weaken the Russians. And we're providing all sorts of intelligence. And the the narrative in Washington is that the war is going horribly for for the Russians. That might be so. Um, But I think that, you know, as people like John Mearsheimer have pointed out, that's an extremely dangerous policy. Uh, and But they don't recognize it as such. And I'm not sure whether it's they don't quite understand or care about the history of the Cold War, which would indicate that, um, you know, we're all lucky to be here right now because there were quite a number of close calls during the first Cold War. That wasn't an error of 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 great stability the way that it's that it's often uh, often portrayed so we were lucky to get out of that first 40-year cold war alive Uh, and i don't think that there's really quite they they don't share that understanding of it so they kind of have a shared um sense of history i think it was mostly shaped by the experience of the 90s when they were all coming up in the clinton administration and the united states was the quote-unquote unipolar power. And it was, as Krauthammer said, the unipolar moment. So they're shaped by this sort of triumphalist mindset. And I don't think that that's necessarily a mindset that is very helpful in a situation um, such uh, such as we're in. So I think that that's probably uh, the main problem. I don't see any, and I've asked around, I, there's really been no push by the administration to sort of get the Ukrainians to the negotiating table. In fact, it's been really quite the opposite. There was a disturbing story released, I think it was last week, about Boris Johnson's trip to Kiev, where Johnson apparently, Zelensky, apparently Zelensky had in mind, okay, maybe we should start negotiating. And Johnson apparently talked him out of it. Um, And there's no way that Johnson would have done that without checking in with the United States. So I think that the approach, it's sort of 
they're trying to portray the approach as sort of cautious and piecemeal and pragmatic, but I think it's actually quite, quite the opposite. So that's a long way around to get <laughs> to answer your question. So. Thanks for coming on, James. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, and so following up on that, uh, do you think uh, that the U.S. has a de facto policy of regime change in Russia, uh, or, or how would you characterize U.S. policy at the moment? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think they would be fine with it. Um, I don't know if there are if they're pursuing measures to pursue that. I, I think that the sanctions policy, uh, seizing the boats and all that stuff, um, I think that that probably they probably have that in mind. Um, they hope that the sanctions policy um, and the sort of uh, and all the support for the Ukrainian for the Ukrainian uh, military effort will eventually make Putin so unpopular at home that there will be regime change. The regime change idea, though, um, isn't isn't the best one. And I I know you know this as a Russianist and, uh, you know, very, I think, reasonable Russia experts in this town. There's about four of them, but uh, Samuel uh, Charap at the Rand Corporation has written that, you know, people who want regime change aren't really thinking what what post-regime change might bring in Russia. The idea is that there's going to be some good liberal Democrat who's going to naturally follow Putin. Well, that isn't necessarily so. In fact, it's really quite unlikely, especially if you look at the poll numbers the last time um, you know, the last time there was a poll asking the Russian public about their opinion of Navalny, it was something like 4% approval. So you could really get someone after Putin who's even more hardline, more nationalist, more inclined to confront the West. Um, and that, again, that's something that I think that the Biden people don't understand or don't accept because of their experiences in coming up through the 1990s when they were dealing with Yeltsin, who everyone felt was, you know, pro-Western and representative of the Russian public at large. Uh, but that wasn't true then, and it's not true now. Right, well, and you'd think that we would have learned after the last 20 years that regime change frequently leads to, to worse outcomes rather than, than improvements. Uh, you, you wrote about this a, a few weeks ago uh, in, your, in your column, uh, talking about the possibility of regime change, and you said, operating on the assumption that a post-Putin Russia would be more inclined to accept Washington's prerogatives would seem a mistake. Yet another example in a long history of wishful thinking, of overreaching, of expecting too much. Uh, given how far relations have deteriorated over the last 20 years between us and the Russians, uh, and the ongoing economic war that uh, the U.S. and its allies are waging, wouldn't it be safer to assume that a post-Putin Russia would become even more suspicious of Western intentions and more antagonistic than we've already seen? Yeah, I think so, especially in light of what's happened since February 24th, right? Um, the idea that, and I think this idea is held by Washington policymakers that the war was going to make Putin unpopular um, has, been, has been disproven. His approval rating uh, is, is extremely high. The last I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, was somewhere in the, in the 80% range. Um, it's sanctions, sanctions don't have the effect that, that Washington policymakers think that they do. 
So the idea that you're going to be able to starve a population into submission, particularly the Russian population, is not going to work. And that's extremely silly. So really, there's been a rally around the flag um, effect in Russia. And I get very frustrated, um, as, as Kelly knows, um, with progressives who you live in this sort of fantasy world that, you know, we're going to unleash all these sanctions. We're going to topple the oligarchs and somehow, some way it's going to result in a popular revolt and regime change in Russia. And it's just, it's just absolutely bizarre. It's not the way it works. And it, and it shows their lack of familiarity with, with that country and really with the history of sanctions. I mean, I know that you, Dan, are a University of Chicago guy, and I'm sure you've read, I think it's Robert uh, Pep, Pepe or yeah, Pepe's paper on, on sanctions. And that throughout the history of, of American sanctions, there have been very few or no instances where it's actually changed the behavior of the regimes at which these sanctions are aimed. So, you know, again, these, the, the problem is, is, is that we have a war on, a very, very dangerous war on, and we have people who are still kind of stuck in a 1990s triumphalist uh, mindset where Washington, they really believe that Washington calls the shots and that the world is not uh, multipolar. Well, it is, and we're going to have to adjust um, to account for that if we're going to survive it. Definitely. And uh, there was one uh, person that you mentioned in your latest Asia Times piece. Uh, it was interesting you brought this up. Uh, Philip Gordon, who serves as the vice president's national security advisor, wrote a book about the, the pitfalls and failures of regime change uh, just a, a year or two ago. Uh, and he argues that U.S. comes to regret its regime change policies over the longer term, even when it succeeds in bringing down the government that it seeks to, to overthrow. Uh, given that the evidence is so strongly against regime change, much like it is against sanctions, why, why do you think there's so much support for these policies even now? Uh, is it just that it's, it's force of habit or... Uh, what, what, what do you think it is? I think it's a couple of things. I think it is force of habit. I think it's, I think Congress is to blame. I think that the this administration and prior administrations um, are always being prodded by the hawks in Congress to do something, to do more. And they see it as a kind of easy way to prove to Congress that, hey, you know, we are doing something. We are being tough on these guys. Um, and then I think, you know, it's ideology. I think that they really believe um, that we have the right duty and ability to um, shape the world as we think it should be. So I think it's a combination of things, none of which um, are even remotely related to the way the world actually works. But Chaz Freeman you know, um, who I don't know if you've had on the show, who is a genius, yeah. has described, you know, has described American policy as the world's only autistic foreign policy. We live in a in, in this bubble and we and, and nothing gets in and nothing gets out. And it's just we keep mis, we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. 
You know, James, we only have a few minutes left, but I, I had to ask you, I, you know, you mentioned your frustration with progressives. And I know as someone who's also lived through um, the the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and how it was covered and, and how the politics uh, worked through that, through all through those years, um, you know, you know that different factions line up, uh, they, you know, come together and split apart over these wars. And it does seem pretty frustrating that a lot of the progressives uh, that would normally be on the non-interventionist anti-war side have uh, broken ranks, or at least in their mind, um, have have uh, are doing the right thing and calling for more intervention in uh, Ukraine over Russia, and have not been particularly vocal in terms of restraint. And that has been a frustration for for many of us. And um, and I see, you know, as a sidebar to that, that the alliance between left and right non-interventionists have split a bit, with progressives being more skeptical of why folks on the right might be showing or trying to show some restraint. Um, you've seen some lashing out at people like. Tucker Carlson, for example, and some of the populist conservatives and some speculation that they're only anti-war and they're only non-interventionists because they're Putin apologists and they like that Putin is a white ethno-nationalist Christian and they're really just isolationists at heart. So there seems to be um, a divide even among non-interventionists. What are your thoughts on how the politics have shaken out? on this issue and what is the core of your, your main frustration? Well, I mean, this is a war that liberal, so-called liberal non-interventionists can finally unreservedly love. And they unreservedly love it uh, because of the four or five year, maybe it's ongoing, the six year freak out uh, that, that, six-year-long temper tantrum that they all threw when Trump won the election in 20, uh, November of, of 2016. And, you know, I have no sympathy for it, but one of the, one of the, I, cause I didn't vote for Trump, but I mean, you know, they really lost their minds uh, for, for four or five years. And so um, it's amazing to me how, how um, how poisonous the 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 um, discourse over Russia policy uh, became in those years, and so this is a direct consequence of RussiaGate. You can draw a direct line between their refusal to. Um, for, you can draw a direct line from their basic, basically their support for American involvement in this thing and, and, and RussiaGate. And, uh, that, and there were some of us who were saying all along, this is going to be a problem down the road that, you know, RussiaGate isn't just a domestic story. It's going to end up causing us problems down the road uh, in, for, in international relations and of course it has. So I think that that uh, explains it in large part. We could go into, I suppose, you know, there were hints of this 
during the Syria civil war. And there are a number of uh, progressives and liberals who wholeheartedly supported American intervention in, in, in that. And that was also driven by their animus towards all things regarding Russia. Uh, so this is nothing more than an extension of the McCarthyite crusade that has been shaking Washington since the 2016 election. That's it. Right, which makes complicates things when we're talking about billions and billions of dollars, you know, leaving the coffers to go to Ukraine. Billions of dollars that could be used in this country, for example. Um, billions of dollars that are lining the pockets of Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, you know, you you know, Northrop Grumman and others. Um, so it is it is is very frustrating because the the debate on the Hill is not really happening, you know. Uh, and anyone who thinks that sending billions and billions of dollars to one of the world's most corrupt countries, which is Ukraine, um, it, it, they're just fooling themselves. I mean, there's a piece of testimony that I like to cite every now and again, given by three-star general uh, Ben Hodges, three-star army general Ben Hodges. And he was testifying before the Helsinki Commission on Capitol Hill in 2018. And he, he, he said that he went to Kharkiv and he went to a, um, a tank factory in Kharkiv. And the thing that he noticed, he saw the, the Ukrainians were building all of these great tanks. And he asked his hosts about, you know, wow, these are amazing. You know, um, these are really going to give the Russians a hard time. And they said, no, these are for export. So and he was amazed. He said, you know, we're giving all this aid and they're building tanks for export. So, you know, the unintended consequences of the current policy is that, you know, it's also going to turn Ukraine into an arms bazaar. Right. And 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 we're going to have on a giant scale the sorts of problems that have developed in Kosovo, though, of course, without the Saudi Arabian influence, but you're going to see that, and, and, and our intervention in Libya, of course, turned Libya you know, into a country that now has open, open air slave markets. And that's not hyperbole, that's true. That was reported in the New York Times. So we're going to see um, enormous problems with this policy of just um, absolutely sending billions and billions of dollars and all of these weapons into Ukraine. We're gonna see, you know, there's going to be real problems with this down the road. Yeah. Well, listen, I hope we'd have you back on to talk about all those problems. Cause I, I know you're right. I mean, we don't, we do not know what we're getting into, or at least we know what we're getting into, but uh, the powers that be and the politicians, you know, shaping the policy or rubber stamping it, if you will, um, aren't really aware of it or don't care. But so please come back. On to crashing the war party uh, for these and other exciting news developments, if you will. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, crashing the war party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, 
Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 